Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. This episode, I speak with Emmy-nominated filmmaker and social scientist Lindsay Branham. The founder of Novo, an incubator for art that inspires human connection in imaginative ways, Lindsay leverages media and technology to end violence and human rights abuses. She has given specific focus over the last 10 years to documenting and responding to the issue of children in armed conflict in Central Africa, but has an overall commitment to entering into complex conflict or disaster areas and using visual storytelling to highlight the human experience. The interventions she has designed have focused on peacefully dismantling the Lord's Resistance Army from within, facilitating the reintegration of former child soldiers, preventing recruitment into violent extremist groups, reducing psychological distress, and challenging the root causes of bonded labour. Her partners in these media-based interventions include Search for Common Ground, the Freedom Fund, and Google. With an MPhil in social psychology from the University of Cambridge, Lindsay has studied trauma and mental health at the Harvard Medical School and journalism at the University of Southern California. Her current focus is exploring the efficacy of virtual reality to reduce prejudice in the Central African Republic, and her virtual reality documentary, Behind the Fence, was nominated for an Emmy and won the Grand Jury Award for Best 360 Film at South by Southwest. A Catherine Davis Fellow for Peace, Lindsay was named the inaugural Envision Social Goodfellow by the Independent Film Project and the United Nations, and she has been published by CNN, the BBC, and the New York Times. Her research investigating the link between media and behaviour change has also been published by Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and in academic journals. Lindsay, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for agreeing. I'm very excited for this conversation. Um, Let's start with the big question. What do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we can take that view? Hmm. Just a small question to begin. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. I guess I would answer it by saying that I think of the global human psyche as not separate from the global living psyche. Mm. So the entire earth psyche, including maybe even space time, the cosmos, etc. So stretching it out that wide, what we see happening is incredible instability, is tectonic shifts, is the impacts of separation from body and mind, from human body to body of the earth, mismatch of resource and consumption. I think we're seeing a real yearning and a reaching for true symbiosis and reciprocity. And we're sitting 
in a deep well of the unknown, let's say, and kind of this liminal threshold of, okay, how do we respond? What are the right actions to take? And what is um, a way of being with Mm. what is instead of reacting to what is clearly um, not well? And how do you begin to answer that question for yourself in your practice? Over the last few years, I've been just deeply drawn to develop my own relationship with Earth and seeing the impacts, the ripples of a life of speed, of capitalism. I'm talking about how that manifests in my body of ignoring the intergenerational ramifications of how the patriarchy has shaped me how toxic masculinity has shaped me, my own internalized um, toxic masculinity. Um, and I say that not as a, in a gendered way, but in a cultural, historical, societal norm way um, that certainly shapes how one breathes, mm-hmm. lives, moves, right? It's the ocean we're all in. So I've been answering that question by returning, remembering who and what I really am as an animal, as a creature that belongs um, to place and belongs to a life system and attempting as much as possible to kind of pause some of the questions about what to do, how to be. Instead, um, can I actually breathe with this tree? Can I allow the cellular borders of my being to fall away and participate in in what it is that I that I that we that all of us are are really a part of? Mm. And so, alongside this creaturely reconnection and uh, cosmic mm-hmm. reconnection, you also wear many hats, and uh, you've been mm-hmm. described as various beautiful things, an artist, a contemplative <laughs> community builder, filmmaker, academic, eco-doula, all of these really interesting roles that you can step into. And from the sense of living in harmony with these different aspects, how do mm-hmm. you find integration or interweaving with these parts? Mm, that's such a good question <laughs> and really difficult to answer. I feel the tension quite a bit, and I think of, there's a poem by um, a poet that's quite ubiquitous, Rainer Maria Rilke, who wrote, widening circles, I live my life in widening circles, and I kind of take that as a bit of a life mantra and trust the stretch, Hmm. and as, as the ripples widen, there also becomes an invitation to hold uh, more paradox, more complexity, which I think is partially what is being asked of all of us in this time, for our nervous systems to be more flexible, for our amygdalas to not react in fear to perspectives and ideas that are different than ours. So the wearing of different hats is kind of a way for me to participate in a complex system in my own life and vocation that I think is directly related perhaps to um, yeah, a way of being that that can hold and see from, from a lens that is bigger than mine. Mm. 
And do you feel that in the work that you do and in the ways that you show up, there are core threads of connection that actually you can trace when you look at these different hats or parts? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly there's a deep interest in the mystical, mm -hmm. in the in altered states, in the divine, which I mean from like a very perennial kind of more pluralist way. I'm not talking about a God and a particular religious aspect, but the ineffable, the boundless, um, that weaves through everything a real desire to participate in justice, justice mm. for all beings, access, equity, inclusion, freedom, like more values that mm. I think link everything together. Mm. Yeah. So let's jump off from there then, because I think one of the things that's really powerful about the way that you work in the world is your work with stories to drive social, cultural, political and systemic change. I'm sure the ripples are much more plentiful than this. But one of the ways in which you've done this is through counter propaganda. Can you tell us what this is and how it works? So we're all familiar with propaganda. We're fed it all the time. Counter-propaganda is taking a narrative and flipping it on its head in which to influence and disrupt the way we are looking at other people, at ourselves, at the world. And so what that means practically, let's just take um, World War II, for example, where propaganda kind of rose because of the access to moving image and radio, etc. And the U.S. government was trying to infiltrate with alternative narratives and what is the truth of what's happening in Germany mm. and in Europe and to tell people the truth, right? And this was kind of the first opportunity that there, there was the ability to even do such a thing. Now, fast forward to now, counter-propaganda used in conflict mitigation and peace building is a way to introduce cognitive dissonance to really try to shake up the rigid perceptions that people have about groups that are, quote, an, an enemy that have been um, perpetuators of violence or oppression in some way, mm. which is these things are complex because that must be held with, with real consideration for what someone has survived. And at the same time, that can loop back into feeding retributive violence that becomes an endless circle. So the context that I've worked in primarily in Central Africa are areas where we're seeing the longest running war in Africa, perpetuated by the, what's called the Lord's Resistance Army, run by a warlord named Joseph Kony. He's been quite well known, I think, kind of worldwide. And his army is made up of child soldiers that they have forcefully abducted and conscripted to be a part of this rebel group, which has now started in Uganda, spread into northern DRC, southeastern Central African Republic, and South Sudan. And actually, is quite a bit of... Um, kind of magical surrealist tenants as a part of this kind of rebel group's ethos. Mm. They scare the children by saying they can read their minds or if they escape, they will know where they are. Or if they put this certain kind of powder on their skin, they'll be impervious to bullets. Oof. And or these spirits are going to come and, and, and harm them if they don't comply. So they're, they're within a very clear kind of framework of belief, right? Mm. And if they go outside of that, their very lives could be at risk. So that would be the narrative that they're, they're under. Now, a counter-narrative or counter-propaganda 
would come in and try to break that up, try to break that apart in order to invite them into freedom in this particular context. So counter-propaganda starts with, one, understanding what is the harmful narrative, the poisonous ideology, and then two, how to really smartly create alternatives that can reach people. So you're talking about a narrative that can even reach someone psychologically, but we're also talking about physically reach them. This is an area of, uh, you know, there's no access to roads. There's to get there, one has to fly on like multiple bush planes deep into the jungle. And so really innovative ways to actually physically carry these messages to communities had to be designed. So can you tell us a bit about that? Because it's, yeah, let's take an example of what that actually looks like, because this is something which, number one, you have to care a great deal to mount such a complicated and presumably quite long project because obviously Mm -hmm. it requires a huge amount of research, collaboration, different people. Can you talk us through a project where you you worked in this way and how it came about? What had to be in place for this to actually succeed and what did success look like in, in this instance? So in this context, the longest running war in Africa perpetuated by the Lord's Resistance Army, there's been a number of attempts over, you know, we're talking about 20, 20 years Oof. to break apart this rebel group and draw them out of the bush, meaning bring them home. And there's been formal peace conferences that have been attempted. There have been informal peace attempts. There has been outright war and violence attempted to get them to come out. None of it has worked sustainably. So a number of partners, including the U.S. Special Forces, the United Nations, nonprofits like Invisible Children, and many, many others, kind of really realized that they needed to come together and develop what's called a peaceful defection campaign and strategy, meaning a way to peacefully encourage people to leave the Lord's Resistance Army and then a way to facilitate their peaceful return home. So there's a lot of steps. There's We're talking about major complication, international borders, international law. You know, the, the head of the LRA is being um, currently sought by the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. So this is a global... Um, attempt to kind of bring bring people to justice and protect communities. So we were brought on to do a very, I just want to put it in context, a small part of a very big, amazing picture to create narrative and a workshop that would roll out in communities across this swath of Central Africa in which to encourage this peaceful defection. And so that started with a really in-depth qualitative research project that I conducted where I interviewed over 100 survivors of LRA violence in three countries, asking them about how do they understand forgiveness? Because ultimately what we're talking about is people coming back through communities that they might have been the perpetrators in, and communities would have to be willing for that to happen. And instead of bulldozing them or forcing them, or of course, imagine that could be incredibly re-traumatizing for people. So really sitting with with them to understand, one, what what is your understanding of forgiveness? That's a pretty, um, could be a Western idea that I'm bringing in, right? And and then two, what, what ideas do you have to draw these children, these soldiers out of, out of the bush? So it was a lot of let's, let's co-collaborate this. 
Um, and that was an incredible process on so many levels. But personally, per, I mean, person after person that I interviewed said, if I hold on to the bitterness, the violence, the anger, I will be destroyed. And my choice is not to let it go and bypass what happened, but grieve and and then do whatever it takes for peace because that is necessary for the well-being of my children, my community, my future. Um, so they came up with all these ideas of welcome home packets that they could leave on paths in the jungle as little signals that, okay, it's safe. If you want to come out, we won't hurt you. But there was a quite a bit of barriers of why these soldiers weren't escaping because they were scared the communities might attack them, right? So the communities of their own initiative, this was not an idea we introduced, started creating these welcome home packets, leaving them all around, little tins of sardines, a little tiny bit of sugar, um, these kind of like offerings of, uh, I, I, I feel like sacraments, really, they're so sacred and, and kind of holy in what that represents. And so out of that, we we created a narrative script about a child who had been abducted and taken into the LRA and then met a community member and that community member helped him to to come home and, and to be free. And so we really wanted to tell the story of what these children had gone through because the, the people in the villages really didn't understand that, okay, they see these, these now soldiers as fighters, but they are actually abducted children that are, have been forced to do this. So they are victims and perpetrators in one little body. And that complexity of being able to see that can grow so much uh, empathy and understanding. So we really love to include community members at every stage of of this process. So we casted the film locally with people that had never acted before, but wanted to. And of course, you know, we're in Northern Congo. This is the site of where this is happening. So people are playing characters that are not far off from their real lives. And there's, there's a therapeutic element at really a drama therapy kind of process, but a full narrative filmmaking modality, you know? So we had a full crew there. We had amazing, you know, crew from the U.S. and crew from, from Africa and really create like this learning incubator as well for Central Africans that are interested in filmmaking to learn. So there's kind of multiple goals happening. Shot the film, created a workshop that goes with it, that, that goes in depth of psychological first, first aid, peace building, options and, and tools and, and simulations for, for folks. And, and then the full program was rolled out through an organization called Invisible Children. And it's been screened now to tens of thousands of people in this part of Central Africa, as well as their, their simultaneous programming to actually facilitate defection. And so they've been able to see a you know, there hasn't been a, let's say, a randomized control trial on this, so I can't say causation, but can definitely say correlation of these programs running parallel with successful, peaceful defections. Wow. So, you know, we're talking about several hundred former child soldiers have come out and come out safely and have not been attacked in the process and have been able to go home and be reunited with their families from which they were t- stolen in 20 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever it was for that, for that individual. 
And yeah. <laughs> That's extraordinary work. I mean, this kind of it puts things into a completely different perspective, hearing about what people have to endure and then how to reintegrate. Mm. Um, and also quite heartrending. I mean, it's. Mm. So I wonder what drew you to work in this way with stories to collaborate with and facilitate people to guide their own path back towards you know, harmonious or flourishing society where there'd been so much suffering and inflicted? Yeah, so I studied journalism as an undergrad and this was pre-social media and I, I had a binder that I collected articles in about Darfur and had, had it was really quite large. And I got to intern for the New York Times at the time, had a documentary channel that aired on Discovery, and I was on an investigative project that was exposing the railroad industry in the U.S. for deaths that were happening at these railroad crossings that these companies were then covering up. And I was the one that would call the families and ask them about what they had experienced. And my understanding and kind of exploration of, okay, what is the human that comes into this storytelling process that is also linked to justice became really compelling. And the piece ended up coming out, winning a Pulitzer oh, wow. prize for reporting, actually. I mean, I was like a little production associate, but, and then I, then CSX had to pay all these reparations to the families mm. and it was just this amazing experience. And so I took all of that kind of gusto and went and, and moved to the Congo to As you you know, do. <laughs> do journalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at the time, it was the deadliest war in the world since World War II. Were you not afraid to go? And especially as like as a young Western woman, you know, like these are the things that go through my mind if I think, okay, mm -hmm. war-torn country, safety. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated answer because on one level, I actually think that some of my own unresolved trauma blinded me a bit from some of the risks that I was willing to place myself in. Yeah. That's really the truth of it. But at the time, I I didn't understand exactly where I was in the gravity of the context. And had I really known... Perhaps I wouldn't have done it. I think there's many of us who can relate to that story. <laughs> Maybe not quite yeah. in such extreme terms, for sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, doing things without perhaps having the whole picture in view, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So you go to the yeah. Congo as a journalist. You're there. Yeah. And I would say as well that while I was there, it's this really, at least in the Congo, this really painful reality to be in a female body and with white skin and know that I probably wouldn't be targeted mm. in the same way had I been Congolese. Wow. And that that just kind of was what was happening. There weren't that many cases of foreigners being attacked, but yet it was the dangerous place in the whole world to be a woman or a girl. So that created a really painful power imbalance that lived in me. And I think um, still, still is, is part of what it is to detoxify and kind of really face um, decolonization as, as a white-bodied person. But all that being said, I was in the Congo and, um, yeah, I started – 
reporting on kind of all aspects of, of human rights there and also working with a humanitarian organization and following their food distributions and their, their various programming. And so I was in front of, of people over and over and over who were suffering at such extreme levels. We are talking about the worst, the worst things that could ever happen to a human being. And as a storyteller, I'm to sit and ask them to share that with me. And because the international community has such a large presence there, at that point as well, it was the UN's largest mission in the world. Mm. Communities were really asking questions. Okay, what is this doing for me? I'm seeing NGO vehicle after NGO vehicle. The war is still happening. I still have nothing to eat. Mm. How is all of these international people helpful for, mm. for violence ending for me and my family? And so I started getting really tough questions from people. Like, why should I tell you my story? I don't want to talk about my story. And so I started asking myself, what is the ethics of journalism in this way? And I'm believing in this idea of telling stories to powerful people in different parts of the world and then you know, change can trickle back. There is certainly a place for that, absolutely. And yet for me personally, it started to break down and started feeling like another extraction mm. from the developing world. And the Congo has incredible natural resources. And so I felt like I'm just extracting yet another thing from this place. And yet it's someone's essence. It's their life story. It's their trauma. And I saw an organization called Search for Common Ground that was taking a documentary about sexual violence, but into the communities and then having conversations with people and bringing in, bringing together, you know, police and community leaders and actually figuring out, okay, how can we bring people to justice here? What, what are services and support for women that have survived this? And it just became so obvious to me, like, okay, if I'm going to do storytelling, I want it to look like mm -hmm. that, that, that feels like integrity and um, possibility of change to happen in the communities where the stories are theirs. And it's a completely different mindset to the mindset that historically the West has inflicted upon other parts of the world. I mean, it's, it's an about turn. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was really moving when we last spoke uh, that you talked to me about was the way in which your film, Nascent, uh, had such direct impact on people that you were trying to help. Can you tell us what happened with that film when it was screened at The Hague? So Nascent is a short documentary that weaves together a Christian and a Muslim child's experience surviving the interreligious violence in Central African Republic. And it's told in a kind of nonlinear, a bit poetic way. And was funded by UNICEF. And these two children, Bintu and Gauss, are just absolutely wondrous little beings. And they've been through so much and their spirits really come through in this. But um, once it was complete, we were able to screen it at The Hague in the Netherlands. And that catalyzed a multi-million dollar grant from the government of the Netherlands to UNICEF to continue services and important life-saving work for children. And and then also the film was in a number of film festivals all over the world, but it was toured in an educational campaign across the U.S. in schools. And I got letters from kids in the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
talking about what it meant for them to meet Bintu, to meet ghosts, how it changed their perspective, how they wanted to be nicer and kinder and more loving to people that are different than them. And those letters moved me so much because <laughs> they're in little kid language and just beautiful. It made me realize like children everywhere are teachers. They're our teachers. Mm-hmm. And to see children mentoring each other this way across borders felt like a a little vision of a, a different kind of world. <laughs> it's extraordinary to see how far these stories can ripple out and how many lives they can touch across continents. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you've also created a VR project that looks at interreligious violence. And one of the things I think that's interesting when we think about changing hearts and minds is this question of how can we elicit a greater sense of empathy, compassion of someone having a deeper understanding of what it really means to walk in someone else's shoes or to take someone else's perspective. Can you tell us a bit about the VR project and how it helped to do that, to create that sense of empathy? Yeah, so after 15 years of kind of working in this space and VR now was the thing and it felt that there could be some really interesting applications, again, for VR in places of conflict, Whereas I was seeing people using VR here to do the same thing that journalism, right? Get people to care about a place that's really far away. And I was interested in in what is the efficacy in a place that's living in the midst of conflict. And so as part of, as my master's thesis at the University of Cambridge in psychology, I kind of pieced together this, this research project, which Google funded and gave me all the equipment and, and the funding to go to Central African Republic and create a virtual reality documentary about a Muslim man who did a quite an extraordinary thing and and saved someone who was responsible for killing a member of his family in the wow. midst of the war. And then I showed that to only members of the Christian community. And the context there is it's it's, I'm putting it in a binary. It's much more complex than this, really. But Christians and Muslims and Christian is the majority. And there's there's quite a bit of marginalization of the Muslim community to the point where during the height of the war, I don't know, maybe 80%, 90% of the mosques had been burned down. Wow. They were forced to live in a really tiny enclave. And if they would go out of that enclave, their lives were at risk. So I was interested in could a story about a Muslim actually change the way the Christian majority sees them. And so we conducted a formal psychology study where we split people into two conditions. One condition saw placebo VR experience, which was just B-roll of Bangui, the capital city. And then the other condition saw this story about Guillaume, the Muslim man that I that I talked about. And we did pre and post test measures and then measures again seven days later. And I was interested in not only my main outcomes of prejudice reduction, which we did see a significant drop in prejudice as a result of this, but I was also interested in what is the mechanism driving that? Is it empathy? There's been, especially in VR, there's so much hype. It's then, especially maybe not as, as much now, but VR is the empathy machine and, oh, it can like make you empathetic about anybody and be in someone else's shoes. And I was kind of suspicious of that actually, because mm. one, there's there's a variety of constructs when we talk about empathy. What is it really tapping? There's a uh, a motivational nature to empathy. There's an effective nature to empathy. And I was interested if it was as influential as as people thought. So that was the study. And 
we found that, yes, it's a driver, but it's a driver in a motivational nature, not not standalone, and actually didn't have as much impact on our outcome measures when you accounted for previous contact with Muslims, education, gender. So there, there was quite a bit more to that picture, which felt um, interesting to me and curious that you don't necessarily need to drive up someone's emotional response to something mm. to change the way they treat someone who's different than them. And I think that's actually kind of good news because we're seeing a bit of empathy fatigue and compassion fatigue when it comes to storytelling. You know, do we have the ability to look at another statistic about another wildlife species that's gone extinct? You know, I think that empathy can be also a spotlight and you can bias it. There's a researcher named Paul Bloom at Yale that talks a lot about this. He wrote a book actually against empathy, mm. <laughs> but how it can be manipulated. And you think about that in propaganda. It's easy to drive up empathy to motivate toxic and really harmful behavior. So empathy alone isn't a panacea. It's what are what is it linked to? And so the what is it linked to piece, the motivational piece that you uncovered as part of the picture of the VR project that you that you conducted. What was that piece that you felt was able to make change in people's behaviors and attitudes? Was it also their attitudes or was it just the behavior as well? Well, it's actually social norms. And so it's really fascinating, but influencing and seeing change and shifts within social norms can predict changed behavior more reliably than a shift in one's moral norms. So they don't need to necessarily personally think Muslims are good or bad. But if they have a understanding of socially what's accepted by their community, that kind of skips the individual morality, which is really, really interesting. That's so interesting. And it calls to mind a lot of what I read in headlines after Brexit got pushed through, how many people were then targeted with racial abuse, ethnic abuse, if they spoke a different language, that, that there was almost this sense, and some people talked about it anecdotally, that there was a sense that suddenly kind of Pandora's box had been opened and it was now okay somehow it had been kind of approved by this referendum, which was advisory at best at the beginning, that it would now be okay to kind of treat people in these poor ways. Mm -hmm. And so there was an interesting correlation there, I think. I mean, just from an anecdotal perspective that seemed to make it all right for people almost mm -hmm. overnight to suddenly mm -hmm. express what may or may not have been there before, but the behavioural difference was right. notable. Right, um, right. And the crime rates also were notable in their increase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. At the end of this study, we asked, would you be willing to donate to a Muslim family in need? That was kind of the way I was looking at behaviour, intention, intended mm. behaviour. And we saw statistically significant increase in that. However, when people were asked, what was the religion of the main character? Most people didn't answer correctly. They didn't even, it didn't even shift for them that he was Muslim, even though he said over and over in the film, I'm Muslim. Oh, interesting. So it didn't matter that their perception was even accurate of mm -hmm. him. They were affected by the kind and benevolent behavior they saw him 
exhibit, and that shifted their perception towards Muslim community as a whole. Fascinating. This is so fascinating. I mean, I love psychology. So to be able to pick apart these layers and see what mm -hmm. actually is contributing to which things. And so with, with most of your work centering around personal and social narrative change, in your experience, what are the key differences between stories that actually move us towards change and those that fail to do so? Well, I guess I want to answer that question with saying that I've become maybe increasingly less interested in how can all people care about everything mm. and mm. more how can the right people care and engage with what their lives really are touching. And the earth are arguably is, is that for, for all of us and has been otherized, has been marginalized, has been, you know, made into something that can be exploited. So I'm really interested in, in how to shift, how to create counter narratives, let's say, mm. um, for earth protection and engagement with meaningful action on, on behalf of, of our one home. And that actually is a beautiful place from which to jump to another question which I have about the 16 months of training that you did at a Buddhist centre where you trained to become an eco-chaplain or a spiritual caregiver and how we show up to those people who are affected by climate collapse, anxiety and grief. What does it mean to show up in this way? And another time I kind of want to squeeze into that question is this term of eco-doula. How does that mm. fit into the work that you're doing that the... Yeah, I kind of almost want to say the midwifing of a new relationship with Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the last kind of large mobile cinema or counter narrative project I did before COVID was in the Congo on protecting Africa's largest and last elephant population. Oh. And during that project, it became really evident to me, you know, what is what is the common common factor here it's it's earth and i could spend the rest of my life trying to get certain rebel groups to live in in peace with one another but does what what does that really matter if the planet that we're living on is disappearing beneath mm. beneath our watch so it caused a really tectonic philosophical shift for me that coincided with the start of covid where I wasn't able to continue doing those types of projects for a large stretch of time. I mean, all of our lives were completely upended, right? Mm. But I was brought into real curiosity around what what is Earth? I have loved nature, loved the beauty of the wild my whole life, but still kind of treating the Earth as a bit of an object and an object of beauty, an object of my affection, and realizing there were many more layers there to explore. And I was interested in the spiritual dimension because I'm really drawn to contemplation and meditation and seeing the start of COVID as well. I was a volunteer on the COVID mental health support line for New York State mm -hmm. and person after person calling in with unbelievable amounts of anxiety and fear and existential dread and seeing a spiritual dimension as really important 
for the times that we're in. So all of that led me to want to learn what it is to be a spiritual companion of earth. And so this Buddhist training from the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies, they, they're really trying to start a bit of a new field. The mm-hmm. role of chaplain is well known, I think, around the world, you know, at hospice, helping people process death, important life moments. Well, we are in one of those, we are in an unbelievably important moment as an entire species, and it is that of a deteriorating earth. And so the role of an eco-chaplain or eco-doula is what you said, this midwifery of bringing forth some life and a new way of being with death, but without losing sight of the possibility of alchemy and transformation and possibility. That is this mm-hmm. moment. That's it. That's what happens in birth, right? It's this unbelievable portal. And I feel as if we're in that portal together. And um, an eco-chaplain also is with people who have lost their homes to climate change or have been survivors of climate refugees, let's say. So there's there's a lot of uh, needs for, for folks that are really facing the existential questions of of climate collapse and we're seeing climate anxiety on the rise, climate grief on the rise, and not a lot of people equipped to companion one another with those deep questions. How, how do we grieve mm-hmm. a home that we have destroyed and knowing that grief, to really feel our grief is our way to access love? Grief is always tied with love. And Joanna Macy, absolutely fantastic Buddhist philosopher and and climate activist, talks about this a lot. But grief, love, gratitude, these all are pieces that can be a part of motivating right behavior, right action, right relationship. And so that's what we're hoping for. I'm finding myself getting very emotional while listening to you. You tap into so many deep um, parts, I think. So one of the things I think I'd love to ask you in the few minutes we have left is to talk a little bit about your book, Heartwood, which is coming out in 2024. I know this is a little bit ahead of time, but for people who are listening to this and thinking I could really do with something to help with this reconnection, to help with a different way of relating. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what you hope for your book? Thank you for asking about that. Yeah, so Heartwood refers to the densest, most innermost sacred heart center of a tree. And I think about my own being, all of our beings, as these dense centers and this invitation to relate center to center is part of a living, breathing relationship that is dynamic, that is full of magic and mystery and animacy and messages and and life. And so Heartwood is a map, let's say, to invite people on a journey to create a relationship with trees mm-hmm. and to move from what I'm saying is stranger to kin mm-hmm. and... In that 
there is, oh, yeah, in, in that I, I really see a missing piece of what's lacking in our ability to meaningfully show up to climate collapse is a severing of our relationship with earth. Mm. And if we don't know the earth, if we are not known by the earth, why would we try to protect it, right? And so this book is is my kind of way that I did it and hoping to bring people on on a path to find find the joy, the wonder the companionship really that I did. And this is not a new idea. You know, I'm building off of thousands of years of indigenous wisdom and practice and being in kind of this type of relationship is, is not a new thing. Um, Robin Wall Kimmer wrote her absolutely gorgeous book, Braiding Sweetgrass, very much along these lines, but Hartwood will take the human body and parallel them with systems of the tree body. So mm. I, you you are you explore kind of all all of parts of us as we explore parts of the tree. And the reason being, I'm linking my journey from healing from some health conditions with how that links um, with healing as a wider system and 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 the healing of kind of the the whole earth, which I think is is a relational process mm. beautiful well i am very much looking forward to reading and browsing through what i imagine we'll have some images but a beautiful book mm-hmm. <laughs> and so before we end i'd love to ask how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days that's a beautiful question i'm really sitting with the question of hope after a conversation i had with bio akomalafe who when i asked about hope he actually said well sister hope is a colonial project and I have been really challenged by that and considering, all right, what is it that from hope, is it a reaching for change that is also part of this capitalistic, industrialized world that got us to slavery, that got us to the decimation of the planet past its capacity because we want more, 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 more. Is that also hope? So I'm kind of in this place of allowing hope to shatter and hoping that some hoping, hoping <laughs> that a different, a different word or a different concept that gets at that same thing, which is so important, which is, you know, the imagination, the live, mm. the aliveness of what's possible, the like tapping back into the goodness of of life and love and connection and relationships. So if we're talking about that as hope, then mm. <laughs> then what keeps that alive is um I think being with people that I love, being with the earth that I love, like really simple everyday moments that are liminal reminders of the kind of pulsating vibrancy of the absolute gift it is to be here at all. Beautiful. And I love what you say about the aliveness of possibility and that element of love and connection. I think that's much more energising than the idea of hope, even. (laughs) 
So if people want to learn more about your work, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Lindsay Loren, on Twitter, Lindsay Branham, and my website, lindsaybranham.com, which will have releases and upcoming offerings. So would love to be in conversation with you. Lindsay, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>